St. Leo 360, a 360 degree overview of the St. Leo University community. Welcome to another episode of the St. Leo 360 podcast. My name is Greg Lindbergh. Here on this episode, it is a pleasure to be joined by Gianna Russo, who is an assistant professor of English and creative writing within the Department of Language Studies and the Arts in the College of Arts and Sciences here at St. Leo University. Gianna, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Greg. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Really appreciate you taking the time to chat here. And I know we have quite a bit to get into. I know you've got quite a background and career and uh, many different achievements uh, outside of St. Leo and, of course, within St. Leo. Uh, so really excited to, to visit with you here today. Me too. So why don't we just start things off here with uh, just kind of a, a bio of yourself, an introduction as far as your personal background. Sure. Uh, I'm a native of Tampa, Florida. I'm a third generation Tampa native. Uh, I still live in Tampa in a historic uh, section of town called Seminole Heights. Our house, I, I live with my husband, Jeff Carone, and our cat. Um, and our house is soon to be 100 years old. So um, we, we have deep roots here in Tampa. I have been a teacher. Um, this is actually going to be my 42nd year of teaching. I started off teaching high school and uh, was instrumental in opening the arts magnet school at Blake High School in Tampa. And I taught there for 10 years. And then the rest of my teaching career has been mostly as an adjunct uh, until I got to St. Leo. And I came to St. Leo in 2011. So I've just celebrated my 10 year anniversary there. I've also done a lot of community teaching um, it, with, you know, a variety of different groups. I taught at one point, I taught a creative writing work for uh, the YMCA. And um, there've been lots of sort of um, co community-based opportunities for teaching. So uh, this is, you know, it's been it's been a great life of teaching, and I'm still enjoying it very much and looking forward to the new semester. Excellent. Wow. And what a background and just kind of going back to your roots. Uh, obviously, all the snowbirds that moved to Florida, <laughs> you know, it's such a melting pot. So to see a native like yourself and third generation, that's really something. I'm proud of it and happy about it. And my, I now have four grandchildren, so they're actually fifth generation. They all live in Tampa as well. So uh, we're spreading out and, <laughs> and hopefully taking over. Not really. I'm kidding. But <laughs> it sort of feels that way sometimes. <laughs> um, so just talk to me about your early interest in writing and the creative arts. Sure. Um, I really became a writer as a child. Uh, as soon as I was able to write, I was writing books and making up poems and songs. And of course, all of this was uh, encouraged and, and also influenced by my parents. I can't I come from a family that uh, treasures um, not only literature, a family of big readers, but also storytelling. Um, and my parents really loved music. And I think uh, early introduction and ongoing um uh, relationship with music, you know, sort of influenced me as a poet. It gave me, um, it gave me a real solid background of sort of 
how things sound and also rhyme and also rhythm. So I have to really credit my parents with building my background as a writer. Um, in high school, I was writing sort of in secret and I, I was not part of the um, literary magazine staff in high school. And in college, I also was sort of writing in secret and I did not major in English. I majored in interdisciplinary studies with a focus in psychology and in women's studies. But during all this time I was writing, what, what really uh, was a pivotal event for me was that at some point in college, and I don't remember what year I was in, I went to an open mic and shared some of this poetry that I'd been writing and only showing to, you know, myself basically. And um, I met a couple of, of other students who were poets, and they invited me to a poetry, uh, we, we would call it a workshop, but it was sort of like a peer review um, group. So I started going to that group, and we eventually came to call ourselves the Tampa Bay Poets. And this group met every two weeks, and we would share our poetry, and we would, um, you know, give our feedback to each other on the poems um, and make suggestions for how to make the writing better. And we met for 12 years. And those are the people that really taught me writing. Um, when I graduated, I ended up going to graduate school. And at that point, I became an English major. Uh, and I did get my MA in English, but I still didn't take a lot of creative writing classes. But because I had been so involved in this Tampa Bay Poets group, I had learned so much about poetry that I was really able to start teaching creative writing. And so up until a few, just a few years ago, um, when I went, I went back to school and, and got my MFA, and that was only in 2000. Uh, 2016, 15 and 16, I went back to school and got my MFA. But prior to that, I was more or less an autodidact, a person who taught herself. And I did take a number of different kind of community workshops. And I did attend some writers, a number of writers conferences. Um, and I still worked with a lot of the people that were in that original group. So that's really how I learned about poetry. And of course, uh, also through teaching, because as you know, when you are teaching a subject, you have to learn it <laughs> and you have to learn it well. So that's my history of, of becoming educated as a poet. And, you know, I, I'm really, when I look back now, um, I'm really happy that I devoted my life to poetry. I feel that it's, you know, my true calling and being a writer is, is my true calling along with being an educator. So they've, they've really blended together um, really nicely. Sure. Very interesting. And then in terms of your teaching career, so what, uh, what really inspired you to pursue teaching and just talk to me about your, your early career in teaching? Well, um, I come from a family of attorneys on my mother's side. And when I was in my, when I was in college and I was, um, as I said, part of my major was a focus on women's studies. And this is going back into the early seventies, early to mid seventies. So we're just coming out of, um, 
sort of a, a national celebration, I guess you could call it, of um, of equal rights for women. You know, sometimes you hear that era called the second wave of feminism. And I was very interested in that. And so coming from a family of attorneys, I actually decided that I was going to go to law school. And I did apply to law school and I did get accepted. But from the moment that I got accepted, I started feeling really miserable and I, I started dreading it. And uh, through doing a little soul searching, I realized that I really didn't want to go to law school for me. I was kind of doing it for the family. And I had this uh, rationale in my head that was really sort of dumb, <laughs> not not a great idea. And the rationale was that I would go and become an attorney and I would make a lot of money. And then when I was 40, I would retire and I would do what I really wanted to do, which was to be a writer and, and read and have my life filled with literature. And luckily, before I started law school, I realized that that was really not a very good plan. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so I gave away my seat at law school and I... Um, I because I wasn't an English major, I had to um, enter graduate school as a major on a contingency plan so they could see if I could actually do the work. And I did. So that's how that ended up. And then I started teaching actually as a graduate assistant, graduate teaching assistant. And I remember my first day of teaching and I was probably, I don't know, 23 years old or something like that. I was so terrified. I was absolutely, you know, shaking, quaking in my boots. And I remember that someone said to me, I was going to be teaching like freshman English and some of the early, you know, early freshman literature or composition classes. And somebody said to me, don't worry, even though you're just a few old, few years older than they are, you still know a little bit more than they do. <laughs> and, and that, you know, that gave me some relief to go in and feel like I could do it. And, and so um, that was at the University of South Florida. And as I said, I think I started teaching there like in 1975 or something like that. Um, I taught for a number of years there as an adjunct. I also taught at the University of Tampa. I taught at um, Hillsborough Community College all that time. And then in 1995, Blake High School was opening with this um, component of a magnet school with uh, a discipline in the cre in the uh, literary arts, and I I applied for that position and I got it. So I actually, with my teaching partner at the time, opened Blake High School and we designed the entire creative writing program, which was twelve creative writing courses, and all of that curriculum had to be submitted to the state of Florida and approved, and it was. So we had a four-year creative writing program. It was very intensive. Students took 12 classes, and really by the time they graduated, they were publishing through our program their own books, and they had done lots of public readings. They, they really had a very intensive background so I taught there for 10 years, and then I took a little break from teaching in that capacity, and I became the um, curator of education 
for the Henry Plant Museum in Tampa, which is a historical museum located on the grounds of the University of Tampa. And I was there for four years until um, a position opened at St. Leo. And I, I applied for that position and I was selected, uh, you know, to take the, to take the position. So um, that's my teaching career and it's been wonderful. I've taught a lot of creative writing classes. I currently teach in the graduate and undergraduate programs. I've taught composition um, you know, basically freshman composition classes and academic writing classes all of this time. I've taught literature classes. Currently, I'm also teaching some UE classes for St. Leo, Love and Desire, and Writing Wild are a couple of those. So it's been a it's been a wonderful experience teaching and of course meeting now thousands of students. When I look back on all of those years and all of my community teaching that I've done too, I figure I've probably taught around 4,500 students, and that might be a conservative estimate. So it's really been fulfilling. And, you know, a number of those people have stayed in touch with me or they're friends of mine now on Facebook, now that they're not my students. And of course, I've met incredible colleagues. My colleagues through the years have just been phenomenal teachers, educators, and people, and writers too. So it's been really very fulfilling. I'm glad I made the choice I did all those years ago. <laughs> Absolutely. That's fantastic. Let's delve into your teaching style, how you approach a classroom. Just talk to me about your, your whole approach when it comes to the instructional process. Well. I I didn't have an a, um, a, an official term until just a few years ago for my style, and it's the Socratic method, where you ask questions and you get students involved in answering those questions and sort of coming uh, with some guidance to their own realizations and their own um, understandings of subjects. And that that is really the way I, I run my classroom with a lot of discussion, a lot of back and forth. I try to make it um, a very open place, a non-judgmental place, a safe place for saying, you know, what students want to say and a place of respect. Um, I certainly at St. Leo try to incorporate all of our core values into my courses. Um, so there's, I, I like to think of my classes as student-centered, with students sort of taking the lead. Um, what I find with some of our freshmen is that that's a little bit of an unusual um, uh, position for them to be in. And sometimes it takes a while, maybe even half a semester or more, for them to start to feel comfortable sort of jumping in and and helping to run things. But ultimately, if I'm successful in my approach, then they become successful in that way too. And I do say to them that their success is my success. So I'm always rooting for my students. I'm, I'm, you know, I hope that they find me encouraging. I think that I am the be all and end all in the classroom. That's really not, not my role and not my purpose. Uh, when I was teaching high school, we had a phrase of uh, being that the teacher should be the guide on the side rather than 
you know, than the person in front that everybody looks to. It's it's being the guide on the side, sort of a mentor. And um, I hope that students feel that that is what I am because that's what my goal always is. Um, I, I also like to talk of, about myself as a coach rather than a professor. Um, students re can, can relate to the idea of being coached, someone who is going to, yes, correct your mistakes, but also give you guidance on uh, the things that are successful. And so I, I hope, again, that, that students see me that way because that's the way I try to portray my role for them. Sure. That's an interesting way to put it. And that kind of leads me into my next question about your grading style. You know, when it comes to English and writing instructors, people think of that stereotypical red pen and just seeing their, you know, their writing marked up quite a bit. Um, and how do you kind of approach, you know, everything when it comes to grading? Well, I have two different approaches depending on the kind of class. If it's an, if it is um, an academic writing class or even a UE class like Love and Desire, um, certainly, all right, let me just say the academic writing class. Certainly, we are looking for students to use the conventions of grammar and punctuation and even um, uh, content development, like using correct sentences and using um, correct paragraphs and that sort of thing. So when it comes to that, yeah, you're probably going to see a little bit of what we might call the red pen from me, although I don't, I don't use, um, I don't grade by hand anymore. I, I use, you know, some of the programs that we have embedded in our courses to help with giving comments and that sort of thing. I like to, um, I like to focus on what's working first before I give suggestions and comments on what isn't working. So again, there's the, a saying uh, that I got from um, a family member who was a salesman. And he told me that when you're trying to make a sales, first you lather them up and then you shave them. And so <laughs> I've always kept that in mind that you wanna give the positive feedback first and then hopefully the feedback of correction and maybe even a little bit negative where things are not working is not going to is not going to be so hard to, to to take so that's what happens in those academic and writing classes where there's sort of a standard that we're looking for students to to achieve in the creative writing classes i use something different which is a contract for a b and this is a um a commenting and grading method that has been adopted by a lot of creative writing professors. It was created by uh, Professor Peter Elbow, a very well-known uh, writing professor. And he basically says, for creative writing, we are not going to um, so much judge the writing as we are going to judge some of the behaviors of the writer. And because those things are, um, they're concrete. And a lot of creative writing is so subjective. So 
some of the things that a student would be graded on and and be assured of getting at least to be in the class are things like attending uh, every you know attending regularly and maybe only having two absences or three absences, turning the work in on time, um, doing what is asked of you in the assignment. So if the assignment asks you to write a short story, you write a short story and not a personal essay. So there's a number of these very concrete behaviors. And if the student hits all of those behaviors, um, and it can even be things like taking taking the suggestions for revision from your professor and your, your peers and trying to incorporate those into a revised draft. Those are some of the behaviors. And if the student hits those behaviors, and there are 10 of them, the student is assured of getting a, a grade in the B range. If the student wants a grade in the A range, then we really start looking subjectively at the quality of the writing and at, and at the progress that the student makes in terms of the quality of the writing. And so then we become um, interested in some of the technical aspects of creative writing, and it could be writing a story or writing a poem, uh, some of the technical aspects, but also the imaginative aspects. And, you know, how deeply is the student delving into imagination and into uh, metaphor and um those sorts of things. So that's what I use for my creative writing classes, the contract for B. And every semester I ask students if they liked that or would they prefer sort of a standard uh, range. And they inevitably unanimously say they like the contract for the B because it takes a lot of pressure off of them. And they know that if they hit those behavioral markers, they will be in the B range. And, and many of them are really satisfied with that and they don't even worry about trying to get into the A range. They, they want to be in the B range. So that's what I do in terms of grading. I'm sure. Very innovative, I must say. Let's uh, talk a little more about St. Leo University specifically. I know you've taught for the university uh, for a while now. And uh, we really do pride ourselves in all of our programs, whether it's undergrad, grad, whatnot, in terms of, you know, not only practitioner-oriented faculty, but uh, faculty that are really there for the student, you know, certainly small class sizes. And uh, from your standpoint, what would you say the benefits of attending St. Leo really are? Oh, the benefits for students? Uh, definitely very devoted faculty. I mean, as far as my colleagues are concerned, I, everybody that I know bends over backwards to try to be there for our students. I mean, really, we, our faculty is just phenomenal. So I, that's first and foremost. I think the smaller class sizes, I mean, I went to a major university with, you know, there were some classes where there were 300 people in the class, maybe even more. So to have a class size that now is restricted to 10, uh, as of this year, it's 10 people. And I know some of them are larger, but um, we have to have at least 10 to go. So, you know, I think you're getting lots of personal attention. If you take advantage of what your um, professor has to offer in terms of office hours or Zoom meetings, or even you talked about 
professors being practitioners, and I'll come back to that in a minute, but if you take advantage of that as a student, you are really going to develop some wonderful uh, sort of professional relationships with your professors. And let's face it, your professors not only want you to do well in the class, they want you to do well in your college career. They want to see you graduate and have some successes along the way. And for students who are now going to either go into the workplace in their profession or they're going to go to graduate school, um, if you've got a relationship with your professor, you can you can call on that person if you need a referral. You can call on that person if a boss you know, wants to call and talk about, you know, how how uh, responsible you are. You can call on your professor if you've got that relationship. So I think that that's the biggest plus to being at St. Leo, in my opinion, is the faculty and the kinds of relationships that can be built with faculty if students just reach out and take advantage. Now, the other part of that was um, you talked about uh, the faculty being practitioners. And I think in, you know, probably all of our disciplines, that's true. But I will definitely talk about in creative writing. Um, those of us who are creative writing professors, and right now my uh, my full-time colleague is Dr. Ambar Grover. Both of us are working writers. We basically have careers that um, are, are, that we work on alongside our teaching our teaching career. We are both professional writers. We're both constantly writing. We're both constantly involved in um, writing projects, even outside of the university. Uh, for example, um, I'm not. Sh I, I'm not exactly sure what Anne's got going on right this minute. But for myself, I'm involved in a project called Art and Common Places, which is a community-based project that's putting writers with photographers to develop um, a piece of artwork and literary art that is going to be displayed throughout the community. Um, I'm I'm constantly doing readings in the community. Uh, you probably know, Greg, that I was appointed by Mayor Jane Castor in 2020 as the inaugural wordsmith for the city of Tampa. That was a huge honor. It was a huge role. And I've just come to the end of it. It was a two-year appointment. Um, but in my role as wordsmith, um, not only was I able to say, hey, I teach at St. Leo, but Throughout the city, I was involved in all kinds of different readings. I did I did some art projects, literary art projects for the city. I oversaw content writing contests for the city, um, just a lot of things. So Anne and I both have these ongoing commitments that are part of our writing careers, and those are happening simultaneously with our teaching. So we're we're both quite busy. <laughs> we're very busy. Sure, sure. And like you said, just being able to to relay those experiences, you know, not only previous experiences, but ones that you're currently experiencing in your professional career outside of the classroom. Uh, you really can't beat that as a student, you know, getting that, getting taught, getting that instruction from someone literally currently working in the field. Absolutely. And to us, uh, to myself and Ann too, it's so important to model what 
what students want to be and what students want to do to be able to model that for them and say, this is part of what for us, this is part of what being literary, being in a literary community is all about. This is what the writer's life looks like. We're living it, we're doing it. And so they can look directly to us and I, and learn from us and, and I, and maybe emulate us too. Um, as their as their work progresses. So to me, it's really important. And, you know, luckily, St. Leo has very much supported that for me. You know, I believe Fran too, but definitely for me. Let's move on to the Sand Hill Review, uh, which I know is a publication of St. Leo University. And I know you've been very involved in that publication uh, for a while now. And there's also a, a retreat that's kind of tied into that. So talk to me about all that. Yes, uh, Sandhill Review is the literary magazine of the of St. Leo University. It was founded decades ago by my mentor and um, the the main professor who um, encouraged me to apply at St. Leo, and that was Dr. Kurt Wilt. So I want to give him his due because he he's not with us anymore. He passed away several years ago, but he founded Sandhill Review. And 10 years ago, when he was still working at the university, he asked me if I would like to take over as editor-in-chief, and I jumped at the chance. Um, so we come out once a year. We always have a theme. This year, the theme is going to be the unfamiliar. And we allow students, faculty, staff members, administrators, and participants at the Sand Hill Writers Retreat to submit work. Um, and, and the work can be poetry, nonfiction, sort of essay, uh, personal essay type things, fiction, or um, artwork, visual art. So um, as soon as school starts, which is next week, we'll be publicizing the theme for this year, and we'll put out a call for submissions the submission period closes December 1st, and then the magazine comes out in April. And we always have a uh, uh, celebration where we allow people to uh, read their work aloud to the public or show their artwork. We call it the Crack the Spine um, Party, like we're cracking the spine on a book. <laughs> And it's always a lot of fun. So that'll happen again in April. Um, for nine years now, we have uh, sponsored the Sand Hill Writers Retreat, which is an open conference and retreat for uh, anybody to attend. So if you're involved at St. Leo, you can attend. But if you're a community writer and you want to come, you can attend too. The last two years, we've done it on Zoom because of the because of the pandemic. And I'm, I'm not quite sure what we will be doing this coming year, but it usually happens in May. And so uh, as the year moves on, we'll be putting out more details about that. Right. Excellent. I know both of those uh, projects are fantastic and really represent St. Leo quite well. Thank you. We hope so. Definitely. So I know that you have uh, published a number of works, and I'm curious if you just want to provide an overview of any, you know, highlights, any anything that you want to mention when it comes to your publications. Sure, I'd love to. So this year in January, I published my third book of poems, and I, I'm really proud of it because it ended up becoming a collaboration with um, a friend of mine who is a professional photographer here in Tampa. Her name is Jenny Carey. 
So the book that we published, and it came from Madville Publishing in Texas, which is a small independent press. Um, the book is called All I See Is Your Glinting, 90 Days in the Pandemic. And this was actually my sabbatical project. I wrote a poem a day for 100 days, and 90 of them uh, became this book. And each page of poetry, and they're usually two or three poems on a page because these poems are very, very small. They've been um, they've been called haiku like, and they are. They're they're really tiny little poems, fairly small poems. Uh, but anyway, each page of poetry is accompanied by a photograph uh, from the natural world, pretty much uh, by Jenny Carey, and it's a beautiful sort of coffee table style book. I'm real proud of it. So that was my third book. Um, two and a half years prior to that, and right before the pandemic, my second book came out, and that is called One House Down. And One House Down is a book of poems that are set in Tampa and that um, uh, kind of cover my my existence as a native of Tampa, but also my fa some family poems in there about Tampa. And also try to look at Tampa as... Um, historically a city in the South. And what does that mean in terms of our uh, dealing with race, in terms of our dealing with injustice? It covers a lot of ground, but I'm really, really proud of the book, really proud of the book because it, it's set in Tampa and it focuses on Tampa. And so that book is called One House Down, and it was also published by Madville Publishing. And then my very first book came out in 2000. 11. And that was by a Florida independent publisher, which is now um, out of business because my publisher passed away. It was called Kids in a Books. And uh, the name of the book is Moonflower. It did go on to win a uh, Florida Book Award the year that it was published. And I'm, of course, really proud of that book because it was my very first. And it took me 15 years of trying to get that book published. So to me, for writers, one of your greatest qualities is perseverance. You've got to be persevering or you won't last. So those are my books. And I've published a number of, I mean, many, many poems individually in literary magazines across the country. And I continue to send work out. And um, I'm, I, by the way, St. Leo, I should definitely mention this, St. Leo published um, a chapbook of poetry, and a chapbook is like a very small collection, usually of 20 poems or less. Uh, a chapbook of mine that I really love, it's called uh, The Companion of Joy, and that little chapbook is available on campus and from me, and it is a, a book of poems based on the paintings of the, the Dutch uh, master painter, Johan Vermeer. Lots of people know Girl with a Pearl Earring, and that was one of Vermeer's most famous paintings. This little book has, uh, I think, 12 paintings of his in full color, accompanied by 12 poems of mine, each one written to go with the painting. So I love that little book, The Companion of Joy, published by St. Leo's Green Rabbit Press, which again was founded by Dr. Kurt Wilt. Wow, that's really neat. Uh, so to wrap up here, I did want to give you the chance to read uh, one of your poems 
just to kind of showcase your writing, and I feel like this is a nice way to end the conversation. Oh, thank you so much, Greg. It's been wonderful talking about all this and kind of reliving <laughs> reliving so many years. It's amazing, but I, I appreciate the opportunity. So we're moving into primary season <laughs> in terms of our voting. And I want to read a poem called Politics, but I think you're going to find quickly that the title is a little bit misleading. Anyway, it's called Politics. When the Blue Jays suddenly caucus in the aisles of a summer afternoon, screaming of a cabal, I rushed to raise up the window in our bathroom, thinking to witness calamity. My cat leaps onto the sill, toting his indoor wistfulness, and together we peer towards the deserted yard of the bad next-door neighbor. The guttural feral cat is batting something in the grass. She turns her dark mottled head to us. Her nose is pale as a tombstone. The cardinals picket in the dead orange tree, crying their dissent. Pip, pip, pip. And the whole yard is simultaneously frantic. The squirrel ranting from the fence post and the filibustering mockingbirds in low branches of the live oak. Even the terracotta rabbit seems to shriek of a red alert even the zebra butterfly trembling in the dill. My cat sniffs hard and quick. Only the ceramic angel is uninvolved. Slumped among the four o'clocks, she stares mutely at her broken feet. And that's politics. <laughs> wow, very cool. And definitely a little misleading, like you said, but man, so much, so much vivid detail in that poem. Absolutely love it. Thank you for that. Thank you, Greg. Definitely. Alrighty. So again, we've been chatting with Gianna Russo, an assistant professor of English and creative writing here at St. Leo University. And uh, Gianna, thank you so much for your time and thank you for everything that you've done uh, for the university, for our students and for the community. Greg, it's been my pleasure talking to you. Thank you again for inviting me. To hear more episodes of the St. Leo 360 podcast, visit stleo.edu forward slash podcast. To learn more about St. Leo's programs and services, call 877-622-2009 or visit stleo.edu.